Hey guys, Jules here. So today begins the last series of our first season, a four-part series on the Catholic subculture. We spent last month diving into the how and the when. How and when did Catholic immigrants first begin their lives in America? But this series is all about the what and the why. (laughs) What did these immigrant communities look like? And why did they live in the manner which they did? In other words, how did the Catholic subculture grow and change as the years of the 20th century passed by? But first, honestly, I just want to begin here. (laughs) I want to begin with a scene from the movie A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, released in 1945. Now, in this scene, the father of the family, Johnny, is singing an old Scottish song called Annie Laurie. It's a scene which encompasses all that was felt in the lives of these early immigrants. A longing for what was and a desire for what could be. Max Welton's braids are bonny Where early falls the dew And was there that Annie Laurie Gave me a promise true Gave me a promise true Which never forget will be and for Bonnie Annie Laurie I would lay me do and This is the story of the Catholic ghettos and a tree grows in Brooklyn. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, today's episode is about diving into the world of the Catholic subculture. But here is the real question to begin. Um, why? (laughs) Again, why bother knowing this history? Well, a few years back, I started noticing this trend, this trend that was happening among a lot of Orthodox, often conservative-minded, a lot of times young Catholics. And it would sound something like these newspaper titles, which I found after just a simple Google search. Uh, All of these titles, by the way, are written within the last five years. And they go something like this. Building the Catholic Ghetto. Or Recreating the Catholic Ghetto. Or A Return to the Catholic Ghetto. And now, here's the thing. I know enough about history to know that this phrase just seemed kind of off to me. First off, the phrase ghetto is not something which we actually have any right claiming. We'll get to that in a little bit. 
But second, the Catholic ghettos, the living conditions of early Catholic immigrants in cities like New York, Chicago, Boston, and Philadelphia, they were not great places. Immigrants endured immense physical suffering and faced persecution and ostracizing from their fellow Americans. So what's going on? Or perhaps in other words, what do people mean when they use this phrase, the Catholic ghettos? What is it that they are really longing for? This series, this closing series of our first season, is hoping to get to the heart of the matter, seeking out what our generation seems to long so deeply for. I'll wait for you beneath Cover you like the branches that shelter us with their leaves. Do you know why the willows weep? Oh, so let's first begin with this simple question. When people are using this phrase, Catholic ghetto, it's probably important to figure out the history behind the term. So to get us started, I'm going to have Father Mark Massa, professor of theology at Boston College, who you have heard from in previous episodes, by the way, explain the history behind the term ghetto. The ghetto, of course, comes from the name of the area of Venice. Ghetto was actually a place name. It was the area in Venice where Jewish Citizens had to be in by a certain time at night because the city fathers locked the gates to the ghetto from the outside. And so the Jewish folks were locked in the ghetto. So itself, ghetto has become a very polarized word, and most historians try to use that term, although it was used in the past to talk about the Catholic experience. There is a pretty extensive debate within academic circles if this phrase should be used at all. Catholic ghetto, just out of respect for our Jewish brothers and sisters. Now, I have been told that for our purposes, by uh, people I trust and by many experts, that the phrase is all right to use in order to point to the larger use of the term and what people are actually meaning when they say this. And what they mean, I believe, are the immigrant subcultures which arose out of the urban immigrant hotspots. So that's where I will begin our story. Or should I say, the story of a story. One of my favorite stories, in fact. Papa, you got a job for tonight? You see the palm of that hand? That's right where I got the world tonight. Where's the job, Papa? Plumber's, a big wedding party. And you know something, prima donna? There'll be plenty of tips. Singing or waiting? Both. Oh, maybe tonight will be it. Maybe tonight he'll be there, the impresario. And I'll hear you sing and he'll put you on the stage. And why not? Ain't I the Brooklyn Thrush? Anyone who has listened to our podcast knows how much I believe that the arts are a gateway into history. So for this series, we are going to dive into the story of the subculture using the arts as our guide. And today, that guide is a classic work of American literature. 
A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Now written by Betty Smith in 1943, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is a semi-autobiographical book about the life at the turn of the 20th century in the immigrant neighborhoods of New York, specifically Williamsburg and Brooklyn. The story centers on the main character, Francie, a bright young girl who loves to read and loves her family. But internally, she struggles as so many immigrants did and do with understanding her identity amid the backdrop of a life of suffering. Her parents, Katie and Johnny, are the children of immigrants. Katie, the child of Austrian immigrants, and Johnny, the child of Irish immigrants. Now, I am hoping not to give too many spoilers away in our episode, by the way, but there is one central plot line that is necessary to understand. Johnny, Francie's father, is an alcoholic. And because of his addiction, he is often unable to hold jobs, which forces his wife to work cleaning people's houses and forces his family to the verge of poverty and homelessness. And it is here where we will let a tree grows in Brooklyn slowly unveil the story of the urban Catholic subculture using three scenes or moments from that story. Up first, the symbolism of Katie's hands. The the material challenges and deprivation were were essential to fostering uh, a community life just at the basic level of you needed other people to survive. This, by the way, is Dr. Christopher Shannon, professor of history at Christendom College in Virginia. You heard from him some last series. And as Dr. Shannon points out, in order to understand the story of the immigrant subculture, we have to understand the story of a suffering people. If you remember from the previous series back in December, most Catholic immigrants at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century settled in cities because of their already existing poverty. European immigrants often fled their native countries, whether Ireland, Italy, Poland, or Austria, because of drastic political and economic conditions, which meant they often spent all that they had getting to America. And they had no choice but to settle in cities because it was really the only place they could find employment or they already had family members living in them. And you probably don't have to use too much of your imagination to understand what these communities were like. Living conditions were often very poor. And sometimes immigrant communities were forced to live in the absolute worst places because of their poverty and because of the proximity to their places of employment. Think of a place like the the back of the yards uh, neighborhood in uh, Chicago, which the the yards were the... um, the cattle yards uh, that fed the slaughterhouses. So you had people working uh, largely, and that, that area in particular, largely Catholic immigrants from Eastern Europe, Southern, uh, Southern Europe, uh, that were living with a slaughterhouse in their backyard. And it made for some very kind of unpleasant living and very unpleasant and also very kind of toxic living. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, people had to be close to their work. Immigrant communities were often forced to the boundaries of society, ostracized from the American culture, given the worst jobs, the worst places to live, simply because they were seen as other. We talked a bit last month about the religious persecution which they faced, but what is often understated is just how much this religious and ethnic persecution affected every aspect of their life 
extreme poverty and suffering, sometimes even to the point of death. There is one uh, tenement, uh, affectionately known as Sweeney's Shambles. Sweeney, again, reflecting the uh, the Irish makeup of a lot of um, the tenement. But during one 32-month period in the 1850s, for example, uh, one in five adults in Sweeney's Shambles died largely just for having lived in Sweeney Shambles. Again, the uh, uh, poor ventilation, uh, poor sewage, contamination of water, all uh, those sorts of uh, toxic living factors combined to be very lethal. Physical suffering was just simply a way of life, oftentimes in these urban immigrant communities. We've seen the very literal interpretation of this suffering in many works of art over the years. Upton Sinclair's The Jungle comes to mind. But what I love about A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is the subtle way this suffering is portrayed. And none is more effective and more heartbreaking than the symbolism of Katie's hands. Remember, Katie is Francie's mother. And because of her husband's alcoholism, Katie is forced to work as a cleaning lady, spending 10, sometimes 14 hours a day cleaning other people's floors in her tenement building. And though the author frequently writes about Katie's natural beauty, there seems to be a focused emphasis on her rough, cracked hands. Throughout the story, we see Katie hiding her hands under tables at dinner, under gloves in public, even in the heat of the summer. Her hands became a symbol for Katie's own self-confidence. She feels she lacks beauty because of her hands. In one scene when Francie wants to help her mom clean the floor, Katie rebukes her and tells her daughter, I want you to have nice hands. These cracked, rough, damaged hands on such a stunningly beautiful woman is a subtle way the author is speaking to life of these communities, often stripped of their external beauty, placed into rough, damaged homes, forced into difficult and dangerous work. It seems so unjust, maybe even unnatural. And yet these hands, these are the very hands which also built our nation, which shaped our American story, which shaped our Catholic story too. I'll wait for you beneath the willows as they weep into the stream. I'll cover you shelter us with their leaves do you know why the willows weep oh. which brings me to the second element of a tree grows in brooklyn annie laurie One of the most interesting aspects of early immigrant life was perhaps the unintended consequence of persecution. When the immigrants are forced to the margins of society, they needed one another to survive. But they also needed institutions to survive, larger organizations to help provide. And no one was more willing to step in than the church. Here's Dr. Shannon again. 
another unintended consequence of um, of this urban living was that the church finally had what it had really never had <laughs> throughout most of its history, which was a captive audience. The suffering of the immigrant communities forced these very communities to look for any means of survival. And the church, whose very mission centered in charity, often became the anchor. What urbanization did, even though it cut people uh, off from uh, the, the communities and traditions that sustained their faith through that period, it, at least in America, brought them in closer contact with the institutional church because the, the church was one of the great kind of anchors for, for survival in this very uh, dangerous and life-threatening situation. And that the church didn't simply, you know, can provide the sacraments and their spiritual needs narrowly uh, understood. But the church became a real center of culture um, for these Catholics, and particularly um, a a devotional culture uh, centered in the church. Now think about this for a minute, because I really can't stress how important this is. The physical suffering of the Catholic ghettos, the forced separation, marginalization, and persecution left immigrants with the choice. Do we let ourselves be beaten down and beg for immediate assimilation? Or do we invest in our own communities, our own churches, and try to survive on our own without seeking the guidance of the broader American culture? And thanks to the national parish structure, which we talked about a few episodes ago, they chose the latter. Now, they did this in two ways. First, immigrant communities under the guidance of the church, decided to build their own institutions. Here's Dr. Bill Portier from the University of Dayton to explain. What creates the subculture is this consolidation, the presence of all these immigrants who are being assimilated into the United States, and it has a huge material base. So so these people are are being excluded by the host dominant culture. And so they respond voluntarily in good American fashion by creating their own institutions. So they create schools and they create hospitals. Now, because the persecution they faced in the broader American culture, Catholic immigrants decided, well, to heck with it. (laughs) We will just make our own institutions. And they did. Hospitals, orphanages, soup kitchens, schools, and of course, churches. Which brings me to the second way immigrant communities thrived. The parish became the center of life for the immigrant subculture. I would say that what all the ghettos had in common is that they were parochial in both the best and the worst senses of the term. That is, they were parochial in the narrow sense of being attached to parishes. They were parish-centered cultures where the parish priest was the best educated and certainly the most powerful, and the, 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 the nun who was the principal of the school you know, really called the shots in a lot of ways for the local um, uh, for the local culture. But it was also parochial in the worst sense. In other words, it was a very narrow culture that pretty much, you know, was concerned only with things Catholic. That basically um, saw themselves and took a certain pride in being outsiders. I remember somebody had given me a, a news a diocesan newspaper from Chicago years ago. I think from the 1940s, and the headline said. Uh, plane goes down, 
killing 140 no-Catholics on board. The parish, including the parish school, became the literal and metaphorical center for the lives of the immigrant populations. We'll talk a little bit more about this next episode, but here's Dr. Maria Mazinga, archivist at Catholic University of America, to explain why the parish life was so important. There were places where there was an internally coherent sense of community. There was first, in the Catholic subculture generally, if you want to put it that way, um, a set of practices that everyone engaged in that was centered around the sacraments from birth until last rites. These suffering communities all of a sudden in the local parish had a center to their lives. When the chaos around them seemed too much to bear, they could return to their center. The parish became the heart of the community. And soon, along with both their religious devotions and cultural practices from their homelands, immigrant communities began creating life together. Max Welton's braids are bonny where early forms the dew And was there that Annie Laurie gave me a promise true gave me a promise true which never forget will be and for Bonnie is a Scottish song from the 19th century, but it's based off of a poem from, I believe, the 18th. It's a song of a love longed for and lost, but never to be forgotten. It provides the perfect backdrop for these early immigrants who so longed for what they knew, but they would never know it again. While they created new lives centered around their neighborhoods and their parishes, they were hanging onto the pieces of their old selves. And yet Annie Laurie in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn serves another purpose too. Katie ends up unexpectedly pregnant and she gives birth to a beautiful baby girl, a plump, excited baby who she names Annie Laurie. And this new Annie, this Annie so full of life and love, is the hope of what could be. Not just for Francie and her family, but for all of these immigrant families. They knew that just beyond the horizon, a new reality, a new way of life was ready to meet them. Which brings me to my final takeaway of an immigrant culture in the tree grows in Brooklyn. The doll scene. I have read A Tree Grows in Brooklyn twice now, and of all the things which are devastating and heartbreaking in this book, there has been only one scene which has made me cry. This scene happens on Christmas Eve. Everyone at Francie's school is pretty poor, mainly made up of children of immigrants, and they all gather in the school's auditorium. Now on stage is a really beautiful young girl dressed just to perfection. (laughs) And this young girl is holding 
this absolutely exquisite little doll. Now it is clear that this girl is wealthy and she wants to give her doll to a girl who is less fortunate, a girl in the auditorium. So the principal makes kind of a spectacle out of this arrangement. She says that the first girl named Mary who comes to the stage will receive the doll. Now in a room full of Irish Catholic immigrant children, (laughs) probably half of whom were named Mary, not a single girl goes up to claim the doll. I won't tell you what happens next because I don't want to spoil it, but it's my favorite scene because it perfectly demonstrates the constant tag felt in the lives of the children of these communities. All they wanted was to fit in. They didn't want to stand out. To claim the doll would be to claim that they were poor, they were needy, that they were different. But the children longed for more. Seeping, creeping into their hearts was a slow rejection of everything which made them stand apart. I waited long beneath the willows, but they weep not for me. Weep for yourself. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn remains one of the greatest American novels of the last hundred years. The author Betty Smith released her book in 1943 and it was so beloved it became a hit movie almost immediately following in 1945. And it's an interesting thing really. A book about the suffering of immigrant communities, the trials, the poverty, all told in the backdrop of World War II and entering into the post-war period. A new hope was on the horizon for all Americans, but there seemed to be something special in store for Catholics. And as it turns out, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, the film that is, was only the beginning. Catholics would begin to make their mark in huge ways in American culture. And it all starts in the movies next time on Mystery Through Manners. A absolute huge, huge thank you to Sean Garrison as always for the opening music and to the absolutely incredible group Sister Sinjin for letting me use their song Willow. I've become uh, kind of obsessed with their album. (laughs) 
<laughs> and with their music, they're just amazing. Please, please visit our website for all information about the music used today. And by the way, if you like what you hear, could you leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or however you listen? It really helps to get the word out and to move our podcast up a little bit in the search bar, which is always very helpful. We will be back in just a week. God bless you, and we'll see you then.